hello, and seasons cheer, merry everything. My name's Armand, you know me, good morrow, and this is the December episode of Resident Report. And I'm really excited for this one. We've got a lot of cool things coming up. Instead of me popping in between each of these segments, you're actually going to be hearing me and also Tori. Tori's one of our second year emergency medicine residents, and we had the utmost privilege of watching Macaulay Culkin and Catherine O'Hara in the wonderful movie Home Alone. And we decided to have a little bit of fun and try and tease out all the fun medical bits. So you'll hear that interspersed in between the parts where you actually learn medicine. So sit back, enjoy. I hope you have fun on this one. I certainly did. And then I'll see you at the end of the episode. Home Alone Part 1. See the garbage can full of salt? That's where he keeps his victims. The salt turns the bodies into mummies. Have you ever used salt on a human body before? Um, no. Sugar, yes. What did you use sugar for? Hiccups? I know what you're gonna... Wait, what? What? Hiccups. Sugar under the tongue for hiccups. Is that a real thing? Sometimes it works. And then, uh, prolapse. That's when I used it, yeah. Yep. I don't think anybody in here is dragon milk, dude. Well, that would be problematic. Why? There's nowhere for it to go. You can't fit a gallon of liquid in your stomach. I disagree. That's definitely not true. You think you could fit a gallon of milk in your stomach? I think you can distend your stomach pretty crazy. But acutely, like all in one sitting. Have you never seen the gallon challenge? Yeah, people always throw up. I'm sure there's people who haven't thrown up. Yes, we have to leave tomorrow morning. Don't worry about me. Look at this. Kobayashi completes the gallon challenge. Chocolate milk gallon challenge success. Gallon challenge milk success. There's at least four people on YouTube (laughs) who have completed the gallon challenge. Did you see it? Did you see what he just did? No. He's got pinworms. Did he scratch his butt? He scratched his butt. Buzz, your girlfriend. Woof. The girl in that picture is actually um, one of the like directing staffs. They they dress up one of their sons because they didn't want to they didn't want to shame like a young girl into being like the ugly girlfriend from, from the movie from Hawaii. Yeah. So it's just somebody's like random son dressed up as a girl. We're washing every body part with actual soap, including all my major crevices, including in between my toes and in my. Do you know my question. Do you know what all the major crevices are? A child should not have. Okay, all right. (laughs) After shave shouldn't hurt if you haven't shaved, right? Yeah, unless you have a break in the skin. Like it's not. It's just alcohol. Like I say, it's like an alcohol-based liquid. So if your skin is intact, it should be fine. I don't know what's going on here. Oh no! Don't climb that. Hypothermia. Hi, I am uh, I'm Tim Harmon, and uh, looking forward as it starts to get cold outside, um, talking how to manage your cold patients. So how do you know someone has hypothermia? So I, I would say that this is something that we sometimes overlook when you're worried about a bunch of other stuff in patients who are found down. You know, first things would be recognizing a patient that might be altered or 
has risk factors to be hypothermic. Let's say their clothes are wet. Be aware of your surroundings. Maybe it was cold when you walked into the, the ED that day. Um, someone who's been outside for a long period of time and remembering to check a temperature as part of your vital signs is something that we uh, we don't always think about during the normal months because if it's high, it's not life-threatening, but if it's low, it can be life-threatening pretty quickly during these winter months, especially. You know, what's interesting is that I feel like temperature is one of those vital signs that we really don't care about until we really do need to care about them. Like I always find myself, if I'm running a resuscitation, I'm at the foot of the bed taking care of somebody and then I will eventually go up to them and just kind of feel their skin and realize that, oh, you're hypothermic. And then I wanted their temperature like five minutes ago. Yeah. Now, I feel like because um, we're so used to just regular fevers at like 102 or something. But there's you know, the life threatening extremes like the severe hyperthermic or hypothermic patients is something that we often overlook just because, you know, we don't see them all the time. All right. I'm going to throw us some quick definitions really quick. Right. Primary hypothermia. That's like environmental exposure that we've been talking about. Secondary hypothermia. We don't really think about very often, but that's like dysregulated thermoregulation from things like sepsis or like hypothyroidism. That one, That's a big one, actually. That's one I don't think about often that it like comes to the forefront at the very end of my like, why is this person still cold and bradycardic? Oh, maybe they're hypothermic or uh, hypothyroid and I'll get the TSH with the reflex or like hypoglycemic intoxicated. But let's just cover some of the numbers, the cutoffs really quick. So we have mild hypothermia. That's 32 to 35 degrees Celsius. 89 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Moderate, that's 28 to 32. 82 to 89 degrees Fahrenheit. And then severe, profound hypothermia, which is below 28 degrees Celsius. Below 82 degrees Fahrenheit. So let's quickly touch on some mild hypothermia, which is 35 to 32 degrees Celsius. How do these people present, Tim? It might be a little bit altered, but typically they're presenting a lot more normal than some of our really severe hypothermic patients. Um, I would say maybe a little altered, probably still shivering, which is a good sign. Um, the absence of shivering is concerning. And then they, they probably have some kind of uh, preceding symptoms that you can get out of them in terms of if they were found down or if they're, they have some kind of infection or they have some history of some kind of endocrine disorder. Um, that's what you'd more see with kind of the mild hypothermic patients. All right. So let's say this person is mildly hypothermic. You've like stuck their rectum multiple times. That sounds so weird. You've stuck a temperature probe in the rectum. They are consistently at like 34, 33. How are you going to fix that? With this, you can normally use external warming. So there's a bunch of different kinds of warming that we can do, um, you know, from the most aggressive like ECMO cannulation to our normal like bear huggers and external warming. You can do what they consider the Norwegian burrito wrap. Um, which is more of an EMS kind of philosophy where you, you know, undress the patient, uh, coat them in a bunch of heat packs and then foil wrap over the patient to help uh, save some of that radiation heat. Um, it also help the conduction and convection. And that can really help if you're you don't have a bear hugger set up you're in a hospital that doesn't have that kind of thing. Have you done this? Um, it's it's something that we talk about a lot of times we haven't we haven't actually done. But if you don't have the bear hugger, it's probably the next best thing that you can do initially in the field. Do you know if we have these blankets? The foil blankets? I, I don't think we do in the emergency department, but they're really common for event medicine and on ambulances because they're they're basically as thin as tinfoil is. You can wrap it up really quickly. It doesn't take up much space and it preserves radiation heat and it keeps wind exposure down because it's hard for wind to penetrate it as well. 
And uh, other things you want to do is, you know, you're worried about your body using a lot of energy if you're fighting like sepsis or something like that. So warm, sugary drinks are a way to combine external and internal heating. So if you're drinking hot drinks, that'll help to to increase your temperature as well, Uh, making sure the patient's covered up. And then most importantly, when patients first come in, you have to expose them completely. So this is taking off all those wet clothes, old clothes, things like that. You want a good exam on these kind of patients. So really making sure you uncover them and then redress them with warm blankets, heating packs, or a bear hugger is going to be important. I've heard you lose a lot of heat in the neck. You ever watched Letterkenny, the show? Uh, I've, I've seen some of Letterkenny. I'm, you know, Canada, it's cold up there. Yeah, did you see the episode about the turtlenecks? And like, oh, never mind. <laughs> Before beach bodies, bros better bundle up in boots, blankets, and balaclavas because a bloody bitter breeze will blow brisk, blustery, and bleak. Yes, yeah, mild hyperthermia. And then we can kind of expect that the core temp is going to raise about one degree Celsius per hour using those methods that uh, Tim just mentioned. All right. How about moderate hypothermia? That's 28 to 32 degrees Celsius. What are we thinking here? How are people presenting? How are we fixing them? You know, they're definitely going to present um, a little bit more altered. You might have them like a lot more encephalopathic than your mild hypothermia. It takes quite a bit to get down to a core temperature around 28 degrees. You'd probably expect them not only to have some kind of uh, concomitant illness, like, you know, maybe they're, they're sick, maybe they're intoxicated or something else but it's pretty rare for these people just to get like that from just being outside maybe it's wet outside that can really drop your core temperature really quickly so those are are things that i would i would look for there's got to be some other environmental factor rather than just you're sick or something like that to get down this cold you can use bear huggers and external warming need to be the mainframe of all the treatments that we use. Exposing the patient and then packing them with warm objects is going to be really important. Forced air rewarming, like the, the bear hugger, which is a brand name, is going to be really important. You can do um, high flow nasal cannula. You can change the temperature of high flow nasal cannula and that can help internally warm as well. Warmed fluids are really controversial. They, they don't really do a whole lot just because it's difficult to maintain the temperature and there's you can't get it too hot or else it starts to damage the blood vessels. So it's it's not a bad idea. You just don't want to put cold fluids into people because that will cool them down quite a bit. You know, if you're 70 degrees outside, like in the trauma bay, and it's 98 degrees in your body, that's a huge temperature drop. But if it's 105 degree fluids that are warmed and you're 98 degrees, it's really not going to do much to raise the temperature. So avoiding cold fluids is going to be important as long as they're like sort of warm they're often going to be dehydrated, especially if they're sick, intoxicated, you know, hypothyroid, like all these kind of things are going to cause dehydration. And your body's also working uh, a little bit harder, at least at first with those fevers and their shiverings. So you're probably going to lose a lot of fluid that way as well. I didn't think about this, but I guess you could use a Belmont to warm up fluids. The only thing that you have to remember is that Belmont was made for like rapid transfusion of blood. And so your, your rate that you're doing is usually in cc's per minute and so usually what we put in is like yeah one liter over an hour and you're if you put in like that you know one whatever 1000 cc's over one you may be putting in once entire liter of fluid into the person in one minute which is insane yeah and so eventually you you know you are going to worry about overloading these patients especially when some of the vital signs tend to be a little bit more irregular especially with the severe hypothermia you know your body does start to shut down eventually Um, initially you might see some tachycardia with your body getting colder and trying to maintain its temperatures but eventually you start to get bradycardia like we'll talk about later and so fluid overloading those patients just because they're not moving much not perfusing very well is something that could easily happen as well now we will go to the worst the severe hypothermia that's less than 28 degrees it doesn't get any lower than this 
well, I guess, you know, if you're dead and, you know, and you're cold. Um, anyway, let's say you're severely hypothermic, but you have a pulse. And the reason I say that you have a pulse is because these people are presenting like pretty much uptunded, altered. They were found down. They've been down for quite a while. They're not really responding to you. What is your management here? So in these patients, you know, first things first, always expose the patient, pack them with warm blankets. These patients are very scary, though, because they tend to not have a pulse for very long. And anything you tend to do to them uh, can exacerbate what's happening. They're very unstable because the body is not designed to be this cold. And so the electrical pathways really tend to break down, especially the cardiac activity. And so they're at a really high risk of developing um, cardiac arrhythmias and losing their pulses. So things that I think about are, you know, you go through your ABCs first. If you have to take their airway, uh, which is something that often would happen just with the encephalopathy that develops when you're that hypothermic, uh, consider using a half dose of your paralytics um, just because there's not much metabolism happening. Um, And these patients tend to do all right with just a half dose. And you really want to try to avoid uh, overdosing the patients on medications with how unstable they are in terms of their electrical activity. Um, We're going to avoid succinylcholine because there's a lot of uh, electrolyte abnormalities when your body gets this cold just in terms of the metabolism. So try to use one of your non-depolarizing agents. Um, And we're going to avoid cardio irritating sedatives like ketamine because they tend to uh, exacerbate those cardiac arrhythmias that we, we don't care as much about in our normal thermic patients, but these patients are very unstable. So it's really important to do everything we can to avoid that. Also, you're going to want to be really careful moving them aggressively. These are the patients that if you drop them from the backboard, it might be enough to upset their very thin balance of their cardiac activity and that could cause them to code. So be very careful with them um, as much as you can. But of course, go through ABCs. If they're not breathing, if you're worried about their airway, you're going to have to intubate them. If intubating them, try to use warm air, uh, like with our uh, high-flow cannulas, um, if you're going to ventilate them on the ventilator, um, just something to think about as well. All right. Let's say if it's somebody without a pulse. What do I do in somebody without a pulse, Tim? So it's, it is different. It's, uh, ACLS is not necessarily the right thing without a pulse. You know, this is patients that the temperatures are typically less than 24 Celsius or, or even more. ECMO cannulation should be at the top of your priority. Obviously, these patients are too unstable to transfer. So if you don't have ECMO capabilities at your hospital, some other things, you could consider CRRT or one of the continuous renal replacements because they can also, they don't do it as quickly, but they can pull blood out, warm it up and put it back in just like ECMO does. And that can be a way to quickly increase body temperature as well. There's not much of a role for cardiac pacing or electrical defibrillation um, in these patients. There's a bunch of different articles. And there's a lot of controversy over when you should do it. You're not necessarily going to be incorrect to try to defibrillate, but it's not something that has a ton of evidence in terms of the literature to being effective either. There's some that some recommendations are that you should initially try defibrillation, but maybe it shouldn't always be something that you go to next time if it's persistent. Some say after three shocks, you can delay further attempts at defibrillation until you get the body temperature above 30 degrees Celsius, where hopefully those electrical pathways are working a little bit longer or a little bit better. These are also the patients that you're going to be here for a long time. This is going to be something that 
you're going to be working out for a while because they're not dead until they're warm and dead as the old adage goes. Mm, Um, So you you definitely have to warm these patients up with ECMO or other methods before you can call the code, just because they tend to have good outcomes in terms of ROSC, maybe not long-term outcomes, if you're able to get the core temperature increased. There's a couple of things that are on your side here, and that's as the body cools down, your metabolism also seems to go down as well. So uh, what is it? What's the fact? Oh, there it is. Uh, 18 degrees Celsius. The body can tolerate cardiac arrest for 10 times as long as at 37 degrees. So like you were saying, you're not dead until you're warm and dead. Um, so if you're going to be running one of these codes, you've got to be prepared for this to be a little bit longer of a code than usual, which means having either a line of medical students ready to do compressions or getting your uh, mechanical compression device like a Lucas ready a little bit earlier than uh, you normally would. I would mention one other thing, like like you were talking about with the metabolism being slower, the severe changes like we talked about with our, our EKG is like the QRS widening and the bradycardia. And so when you get this cold and you're pulseless, um, you can you know survive 10 times longer at 18 degrees Celsius than 37. And so for pulse checks, we don't normally do like the 10 second pulse check. You can check for pulses for as long as one minute because patients are just so profoundly bradycardic. Huh. And they can tolerate those longer pulse times, pulse because, check times, because their metabolism is okay. a lot slower. Okay. Um, so it's something to think about that, you know, very rare pulses are something that these patients can tolerate just because their metabolism is so low. I think the last thing that I wanted to mention, you've heard of this thing in hypothermia where people have uh, most of their blood volume central as your body's trying to conserve the uh, warmth that it has. And then as you're resuscitating someone, you are warming them up. And then all of a sudden that venous return that you had that was primarily central is now going to go peripheral and you vasodilate and you, you then become hypotensive again. Do you do you give fluids? Do you volume resuscitate at that point or do you just kind of stay the course of where they're at? Let them be a little hypotensive, like permissive hypotension. I don't know if you're privy to that answer or not. Mm. I, I think that ideally you want these people to have some of that venous and arterial dilation because they're so clamped down when they're hypothermic, like you're not perfusing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so for normal physiology, you want the that extra fluid that you're getting because ideally you're going to have these patients where they're not so constricted once you resuscitate them more. So I'd imagine if they're getting hypotensive, they're probably volume down. And the reason they were normal tensive is just because they were so clamped down mm-hmm. because of all the pressors that their body is producing naturally. Mm-hmm. And so that they're probably total body volume down. That is all we got. Would you like to say to the children this December? You know, stay warm out there. You know, wear your hat, your, your long coat, uh, your scarf and your mittens and avoid the perils of hypothermia and be good for Santa Claus. I um, was dumb. I forgot. There's like a little bit more that I want to talk about. Um, in our shop in particular, there's a couple things that you should know. There are a lot of shelters out there that open depending on um, what the outside climate is. Um, we have our Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, HSCMA. They have a cold emergency alert slash plan. Um, this happens when the temperature and wind chill are combined less than 15 degrees or combined less than 20 degrees with some sort of meteorological event like snow or hail or rain or whatever. Um, and what ends up happening here is that a bunch of places open up as a low barrier hypothermia shelter. Um, and then there are overnight warming facilities that open up as well. 
And in addition to this, you can get people to um, these places using the DC shelter hotline. And this is obviously for people who are not in severe hypothermia. So you can't send somebody there on ECMO um, is what I've learned. Um, but I will call them and make sure just for you, just for you. Yeah, I've often been curious about their uh, critical care uh, abilities at these shelters. So if you could let me know um, how we can discharge patients, I would appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Um, but good places for people who are maybe mildly hypothermic that you have fixed and don't need to be admitted or just somebody who's uh, cold and needs a place to stay. Home Alone Part 2. Anthrax. What? Sheep and straw. Anthrax. Are you saying Jesus might have gotten anthrax from the straw that he was delivered on? <clears throat> Maybe not pulmonary, but definitely possibly cutaneous. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. But you're talking about a sheep. Mm-hmm. Not the not the hay. OK, now everything makes sense now. Yeah, that definitely that definitely tracks. He would have gotten anthrax from the sheep. I hope no one listens to this part. Who is it? It's Little Nero, sir. I have your pizza. Leave it on that doorstep and get the hell out of here. It's such a mean little guy. Did nothing to him. He's a little. I mean, I think the the point of this movie is that we learn is actually Kevin sucks. He's he's a brat. Yeah. He didn't tip the guy. It's like near Christmas, and he's working at near on near Christmas with all that snow in Chicago. And he's the only one that works there. He gave him 20 cents. 20 cent tip in this economy? Ridiculous. I'm starting to realize that that's probably the hero of the film is the pizza delivery guy. He did fall. All of these people in the back of a of like a U-Haul basically. No, no seatbelt, nothing. This is a recipe for like... Have you seen this before? This movie? No, no, no. Like, have you ever seen anybody in the back of like a moving truck after he gets hit by a car? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, you actually have? Yeah. What happened? I mean, they flop. Like, they move. They, they're projectiles. You saw this during residency? EMS. Oh. Oh, you guys are so cool. You see everything. There was a trend recently where people were putting kiddie pools in the back of like U-Hauls. Filling them partially with water and then sloshing back and forth. How do you know this? Is this on TikTok? Yeah. This is another TikTok thing? YouTube, TikTok, somewhere. What's the name of the trend? I don't know. Sloshing? I don't know. It's like a it's like moving truck pool. Like the the slosh challenge? I don't know if there's a name for it. Tide pod challenge, you know? This is not real. It is real. Um, pool inside moving. Look. People do this. What's in the literal? Liberty Mutual. Are they actually like on a highway or something? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they're on a highway. I, I think hope not. Like, it's the start and go, okay. which is worse. Because. Look at this kid. This is the kind of kid that does not wear a helmet when he. God bless these people. If it weren't for these people, I don't think that the emergency room would be 
as fun as it is. ECGs with TKB. There's going to be probably an episode about hypothermia that we're going to talk about. We'll talk about ECMO and all the very scary things. But hey, if somebody has a pulse and their electrical rhythm is, you know, there and they are coming in cold, there is a clue that we have. Once again, our, our certified caliber owner, uh, Taylor Blackwell. Captain Taylor Blackwell of the good ship Electrica de Grippy. Hey guys, Taylor Blackwell here. Thank you again for having me back. I am going to be piggybacking off of one of the previous talks where they talked about how to really save someone's life with hypothermia. I'm going to take a less aggressive approach. I'm just going to figure out how we can tell through little squiggly lines that they're hypothermic because checking their temperature is a little too hard. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. And here we try to, we try to do everything uh, electrocardiographically here. So hypothermia, right? Patient comes in cold. As previously mentioned, there are different degrees of hypothermia. And we'll talk about what we see on the EKG for those different levels of hypothermia. But you have a patient brought back from the waiting room, found down outside. It's December. You're here jumping between holiday heart and all these other, uh, like classic winter, you've got your uh, um, oh, holly overdose and to winters. Damn it. We should have done to winters. All right, let's do that in January. All right. To winters in January is a good call. But so you get brought back an EKG. And my hope with this talk is that this will lead you to take the temperature, right? Like this is not the guy that comes in and they're like, hey, this guy's here for hypothermia. The EKG is probably not super valuable in that case. But the patient who comes in in triage or they get one, EMS gets one and, and sends it in on the way. This is the guy that you you go, wait, let's get a rectal temperature. Don't just swipe the probe along the top of his head and make up a number that starts with 98, right? So hypothermia, there are two categories I want to go through here. There are the test answers, which are also applicable in real life. And then there are the real life answers of what you see on an EKG. There's two main things I want to nail into your head that are in both, but you are going to see on a test Every EM test you're going to take for the rest of your life will have one of these two features. And I want you to, I want you to recognize that because these are easy points, right? Osborne or Jay Waves. The first of those, and tip of everyone's tongue, let's dive straight into the money here. Osborne or J Waves. Thank you. Right? Um, what, is, what is a J Wave? What is an Osborne Wave? It's a positive deflection at the J point. It is not pathognomonic. Or hypothermia. We learn it as it is. We learn S1, Q3, T3. We learn all kinds of weird things that are not real in real life. This is not pathognomonic, but it's it's very, very good. Okay. There are other things that we'll talk about that, that we see things that are technically not Osborne or J waves, but are so similar to our eyes that it's very difficult to distinguish. Um, and we can make it pathognomonic if it's big enough. Okay. Um, but I want, I want a quick note here. Osborne waves are positive waves in almost every lead. They're positive deflections. If it's a negative deflection at the J point in any lead, except AVR and V1, where you expect J waves or Osborne waves to be negative, it's technically not a J wave or an Osborne wave. Don't lay your hat on that, so to speak. Okay. Where do you see these waves? We talk about them as positive, positive deflections at the J point anterior and precordial leads. So most commonly V1 through V6 is where you see the the biggest prominence of these J waves. The beauty of this J wave is that the height of the Osborne wave is roughly proportional to the degree of hypothermia. So as you warm patients up, their J wave size, both width and height actually decreases until it ceases to exist. Okay. So when you see someone who comes in with J waves that are jumping off the page and slapping you in the face, 
you get that rectal temp, but you expect it to be cold. Start that management early. Don't wait until you get that rectal temp because it might just be so cold that they're going to have trouble getting one unless they really truly go for that rectal temp. And the beauty of this is you get a repeat EKG later. You can track the temperature and tell the nurse, oh, he is warming. And they're like, how did you know that? You're looking at that J wave. It is the most specific finding for hypothermia, but it is not quite pathognomonic. Other conditions you see it in, you see it in a BER where in October, we talked about this, where we used our de- decision rule to decide whether this is a subtle anterior STEMI or a or BER. One of the indi- the things we talked about that classically shows up in BER is a, a deflection or notching at the J point, which could mimic a small J wave. The, the other condition that we commonly see or commonly mistake for a J wave is hypercalcemia. And why does this happen? Does hypercalcemia cause J waves? No, it does not. It causes shortening of the the ST segment. And so as that T wave gets so close to the end of the QRS complex that it starts to butt up against it, that upward deflection can look like a J wave. And the subtlety here that's really not that subtle is you may get fooled if you have a small T wave and a very short ST segment. Is this a little J wave? The key is you don't see a T wave after that. So no, that's just the T wave. Check the calcium. To diagnose a J wave, you need to see a T wave after it. Because if it's not there, that J wave might be your T wave and you got to check that calcium level. How do you distinguish BER J waves from Osborne waves? You take the temperature. Generally, the J or Osborne waves in hypothermia are bigger than your BER, but not always so. You got a young, healthy, athletic heart. You can have a big J wave in BER, or you got someone who's just a little hypothermic, you can have a small Osborne wave. So take the temperature. I'm not saying get a rectal temp in every BER patient. Don't do that and blame me. But you have a guy who comes in and he's a little cold to the touch, just get his temperature if you're getting J waves potentially on an EKG. Shiver artifact. Next thing that we're going to be talking about is the shiver artifact. That is your next test feature that I want you to, to be nailing on Rosh. I want you to nail it on your boards exams. Shiver artifact looks like what it sounds, right? You have your QRS is marching out appropriately, and then you have these little shiver waves that look for all the world like AFib because they're just blocking out any P waves. You don't see regular P wave activity. Sometimes you see it budding through it, and that's beautiful. But you see somebody who's hypothermic or feels cold, and you get an EKG, and it looks like regularized AFib at a normal rate or slightly bradycardic rate. Chances are you're looking at shiver artifact, not true AFib. But we'll talk about a little more about AFib in the future in just a minute here. But if it is regularized and only slightly bradycardic as a normal rate, probably these are shiver signs, shiver artifact. Um, and again, this is this is one that when they get so cold, they stop shivering. You don't see. And as you warm them, you may see the shiver artifact start to take effect. And then as you warm them more, the shiver artifact goes away. So something you can use to track the temperature over time as well. Now to the real life situations. We've talked about Osborne waves and shiver artifact. Those are present in real life, but there are a couple of things that I have never seen tested on the boards that I want to nail into your head. Next time you see a hypothermic patient, you get an EKG. Okay. The first one is what is the most common rhythm in somebody who is hypothermic, properly hypothermic? It's bradycardia. It's any bradyarrhythmia. Sinus brady is your number one rate, but I want to nail in here. It is common to have bradycardic junctional rhythms where the AV node, as it gets cold, is not conducting effectively. And so you see like a junctional escape rhythm. That is common. 
And that's something that I would, that would concern me if I'm seeing shiver artifact and a bradycardic functional escape rhythm for hypothermia. The second one is we talked about AFib. If it is slow, but regular, think shiver waves. If it is slow and irregular, it might properly be AFib. There was a long argument in the cardiology, electrocardiographic community about whether this is real AFib or whether this is a shiver artifact with irregular conduction because the AV node is just so cold. And I found a study where some cardiothoracic surgeons took people who were undergoing cardiovascular surgery for other reasons and needed cooling. They cooled them down to uh, 28 to 30 degrees Celsius and had them paralyzed for the surgery. So there's no shiver artifact. 19 of the 29 patients had slow AFib. That was totally new. So AFib is a known rhythm in hypothermia and new AFib that resolves when you warm them does not need anticoagulation, does not need additional workup as long as it goes back to sinus when they come come back warm. If you are seeing slow, irregular, no P waves, it might be shiver artifact, but it might genuinely be AFib. Okay, No change in the management, but just know that that's not unexpected. You're not looking at something else going on here. Obviously, check your electrolytes, check all your other things because hypothermia can cause all kinds of problems with those, but that is not an unexpected finding. That's what I was going to ask. Is does it go away? Yeah, it almost always does. And in this study, all 19 went away. If they come back and they're still in AFib, then you're looking for other correctable causes. Is this is this an electrolyte disturbance? Is this did this cause some ischemia to the heart? But then you're in your normal AFib pathway. But I would expect it to come back to sinus rhythm. Other things you can see is AV blocks. Anything from first degree to third degree AV blocks are expected in hypothermia and tend to reverse when they come back to normal sinus at a reasonable temperature back to their normal temperature. And those all come from the the slowing through the AV node that we've talked about last month. Other thing that I want you to think about is prolongation of the intervals. You can think of hypothermia as a generalized slowing of electrocardiographic conduction. All of your intervals slow down. Your PR segment slows down and prolongs. And that's why you get that first degree AV block we just talked about. Your QRS tends to widen and space out. And that's just because it's just not the electricity is physically not moving through as much. Um, and so you see a little bit of a widening of a, of a QRS. Your QT seg- segment prolongs. And this is where it gets really interesting. Okay. Your QT segment is prolong- prolonging as your other intervals are because of a specific prolongation of the ST segment. Okay. We talk about the, uh, the, the QT interval prolonging a lot. And actually, when you look into this, there's only two things that really cause prolongation of the ST segment specifically with no change in the length of the T wave. That is hypocalcemia and hypothermia. And so what you're going to see is a long ST segment with a normal width T wave at the end of it. All other forms of QT prolongation that we think about and we look for prolong the T wave. Exactly. Your ST segment is normal length, but your T wave is just really, really wide. And so it makes your QT segment look really long. So this is this is a buzzword. Trick your attendings. Look into it. If you see widening of that ST segment specifically, you can get an iStat Cal and check the the temperature, and you're going to catch one of those two. That's as close to pathognomonic as you can get as one of those two. Nothing else does that. And then ventricular ectopy, and obviously VTAC, VFib, asystole. But that gets into the other person's talk. I won't step on their toes too much because by then you're resuscitating, and if you're still looking at the EKG, you're in trouble. Right? Don't, don't hold a an asystolic EKG for very long. You should be doing something else. I'm just going to see a bunch of like, what are all the, oh, these are compressions on the. That's called compression artifact. Yeah. I don't think there's very much that uh, I had 
too many questions about. I just wanted to know if any of this stuff was reversible. And it seems like most of it is reversible as you warm the person up. As you warm them back up, obviously you run into other problems with the sudden vasodilation and the fluid shifts. And depending on how long they're down, you can have hyperkalemia and hypocalcemia and all of the electrolyte disturbances you see with, with hypothermia in general. And that can cause other issues with the EKG as they warm back up. But the hypothermic specific changes to the EKG are all reversible as you warm them up. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Blackwell. Caption. Home Alone Part 3. This eight-year-old should not have a, a gun. It's not a real gun. Isn't it a BB gun? It's a BB gun, yeah. Well, I mean... Which, you're right, yeah, those can pretty hurt. Those can hurt pretty bad. I mean, oh, okay, here we go. Again. Yeah, point-blank range. Into the crotch. That's going to hurt. Is that really where he's going? Yeah, yeah that's definitely where he's going. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's a neurology consult. Yeah. Though I I did learn talking to a pediatric EM doc that falling like stair by stair is a lot better than falling like the total distance because each impact is so much smaller. Yeah, this is very smart of him to use that to like get up. Maybe we should send people home with crowbars instead of uh, ooh that would probably yeah crowbar in the head probably hurt a lot. I don't know. I still don't know if it would break anything or give you like a subdural or something. I need somebody frail. Oh, this physical comedy is gold. <laughs> oh! See that? Okay. All right, flexion extension injury. That would definitely cause some unstable C spine. Yeah. Talks chats with Cat. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to. Uh, we should just make, name, make this like a segment. Do you want to name this segment? Oh, we should have a name. I just. I feel like there's a really clever one and I just can't think of it right now. Something talks, something cat and talks. Yeah, I know. We'll come up with something. It can be like okay. talks chats with cat or something. I don't know. Talks chats with cat. That's, That's too a lot difficult. Of... Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure something out. Okay. All right. Uh, today we're talking about uh, TCA toxicity, tricyclic antidepressants. The reason we're bringing this up is uh, you had an experience with TCA recently that I know you wanted to talk about. But I'm going to be completely honest. I don't know very much about TCA other than what I see on the boards. And the issue that I have is I really don't know what to look out for other than if the, if the QRS is widened, then maybe think about TCA. That's all I know. I mean, that's a great starting point for sure. There are a little like good educational tidbits that we can talk about today that I can go over that I think will be helpful in your daily practice should you have a patient that comes in with a TCA overdose. But so what I can talk about a little bit in the beginning is the fact that TCAs have kind of like a pop cultural reference. And that's being the Law and Order SVU season four, episode four episode, which is called Mercy. It was basically about a mother who poisoned her newborn with a TCA after finding out that she was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs. And then like in true Law and Order SVU fashion, it was basically proving that the baby was a product of her cheating which is why it was a law and order SVU episode. But the moral of it was that wait, she wait, wait, overdosed. The baby was a product of what? The mother had an affair. And so Tay-Sex proved that the mother had an affair. So she killed the baby in an attempt to hide the fact that she had an affair, but she was hiding it under the fact that she was like, I don't want my baby to grow up with Tay-Sex. And her poison of choice was a TCA. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
I have a case that I kind of took from one of the poison control um, presentations that I've done recently. And it was basically a 50-year-old woman. She weighed 62 kilograms, always important to know in tox presentations. She took three of her 25 milligram amitriptyline tablets, and it was about five hours prior to her coming to the emergency department. She basically was telling everyone that she was nervous that she wouldn't wake up if she went to sleep. There was a, definitely a component of anxiety here. But her vitals, um, her blood pressure was 115 over 79. Her heart rate was 101. Her respiratory rate was 18. Her temp was 99, and she was setting 97% on room air. And when the ED called poison control in regards to this case, they did not have an EKG present initially when they were kind of like making this consult. And I'll go into a little bit about talking about why that's really important to definitely obtain the EKG when patients first show up with this. I feel like I know enough now that I would do that immediately. Like I, before I even call poison control, I have already gotten the EKG and drawn the like poison control labs and then yeah. put my hand in their armpit to see if they're sweaty. Good. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So a little bit of history about TCAs. The tricyclic core dates back to 1889. At that time, it was used as a hypnotic for agitated or psychotic patients. And then subsequently was found to alleviate symptoms of depression. And so amipramine, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Crazy how that works, huh? <laughs> And miframine was one of the earliest ones used for depression in the late 1950s. But by the time the 1960s rolled around, the cardiovascular and then the CNS toxicities were recognized as some of the major complications when patients were coming in with overdoses with TCAs. And so tricyclics for depression, like the rate of them decreased in use due to the introduction of SSRIs and SNRIs. But they're still used today for some other indications. I mean, they're still used for depression for sure, but a lot of times they're used for like chronic pain or sleep disorder. Sometimes you see them with patients with OCD or ADHD and pediatrics and like other psychiatric concerns that they'll use it as like a, a secondhand or an adjunct. So going to the pharmacokinetics, tricyclics are rapidly and almost completely absorbed in the GI tract. And we'll see the peak concentrations approximately two to eight hours after administration. Um, in that two to eight hours, they have large and variable volumes of distribution. So they'll go rapidly around to the heart, the brain, the liver, and the kidney. The ways in which patients kind of like metabolize these and the ways it kind of distributes throughout the body vary a lot based on genetic differences and the activity of CYP2D6. This is the enzyme that's responsible for hydroxylation of a lot of the TCAs, and it accounts for a lot of the inter-individual variability in the metabolism and the steady state of these distributions within the body. The metabolism, though, can be influenced by a lot of things, such as ethanol, which can often be used when there's like concerns for overdose in these medications, or kind of like other medications that are on board that affect the liver hydroxylation activity. But the elimination half-life is usually 7 to 58 hours, but is oftentimes longer in older adults who have a lot of polypharmacy going on, as we know. And then a lot of it is hepatic metabolism or fecal excretion and a small amount of kidney excretion. But something to know when a patient says they're coming in and they took X amount of tablets of their TCA is that a typical therapeutic dose is two to four mg per kg per day. But 15 to 20 mg per kg is what we think is potentially fatal. And so if you take this into like thinking about our pediatrics patients, if a child gets into their parent's TCA bottle and the child weighs like 10 kilograms, it would only take four 50 milligram tablets for this to be fatal for a kid. So something to know, it's very weight specific for them. And when these patients present... So in terms of pathophys, it has a lot of effects throughout the body. There are multiple within this kind of like category of TCA, and they all have similar pharmacologic effects 
on the autonomic nervous system, the CNS and the cardiovascular, but like they vary a little bit based on their relative potencies and side profiles. Mainly, they brought reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin. They also have an anticholinergic effect. So as we know, those would present as dilated pupils, tachycardia, they'd be dry and they'd be hot, and they might have urinary retention. So you can do a quick bladder scan at bedside to see if that's a concern for you. It also has alpha-1 adrenergic blockade activity. This manifests as vasodilation and hypotension. There's antihistamine effects, which can cause sedation. And then there's GABA receptor antagonism, which kind of can cause seizures down the line if it's not well controlled. But the main thing that I think we think about, and an excellent point that you brought up in the beginning in terms of the EKG, was that there's a sodium channel blockade. This will manifest as a wide QRS when we see them when they initially present with an overdose. When we're thinking about TCA activities, cardiovascular toxicity is the primary responsible kind of factor that we think about in terms of morbidity and mortality in these patients. It can often cause prolongation of the PR interval, QRS complex, and then a long QT interval that can happen both at therapeutic levels of TCAs and at toxic amounts. That's important to know. Somebody who's just taking it at a normal level can still manifest these changes on their EKG. The most common dysrhythmia that we'll see in these patients is sinus tachycardia, which is kind of associated with the anticholinergic effects of these medications. But a widening of the QRS is can be used to help risk stratify the patients that come in and overdose. That's kind of scary because now what you're telling me is that this presents with all of the toxidromes at the same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that seems to be distinguishing it from the other toxidromes, it seems like, is this sodium channel blockade, maybe. But I I suppose that that isn't consistent either. So you might have like a prolonged QRS and a prolonged QT, but you'll see the prolonged QT and be like, maybe they did something else or I don't know. Right, right. Do they have something that like a baseline, they already have EKG changes and this is like their baseline or it's, I think a lot of it comes down to trusting the patient and reviewing their med list and saying like, if they took a ton of them or you can like, look on just their med rec and see if it's already prescribed to them and then keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah. This just isn't fair. Otherwise. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're kind of screwed sometimes. (laughs) Speaking of the EKG though, like you were Mm -hmm. saying. Yes. So basically when you have a patient, when this is a concern that they're coming in with an overdose and to start off the evaluation for them, definitely getting an EKG. What you can see is a right axis shift, widening of the QRS and definitely a tall R wave and lead AVR. Um, in terms of what I mentioned before, in terms of the QRS complex widening, in patients that have a QRS complex duration greater than or equal to 160 milliseconds have a 50% incidence of ventricular dysrhythmias. And those that have a QRS complex greater than or equal to 100 milliseconds, 33% of them developed seizures and 14% developed ventricular dysrhythmias. And then patients who had a QRS complex that was kind of like within normal limits, less than 100 milliseconds, there wasn't any noted seizures or dysrhythmias. So kind of important to know, we're looking at the QRS complex to risk stratify these patients, particularly when they initially present and then when we're looking at them over time. And then basically in terms of labs, the CRM TCA concentrations, we don't really use them in practice. They are usually a send out lab. By the time we get them back, the patient is either hopefully heading in the right direction or we're kind of moving on to other things on our differential. But always want to consider a CBC and a CMP as well as a VBG to kind of get a baseline assessment of the patient. So in terms of management strategies for those patients, the patient that comes in, he says they took a lot of their TCAs or you could do their med rec and then you can see that it's on their prescription list. So you just have a high suspicion that they somehow got access to TCAs. 
and you've done a thorough assessment, including the EKG and then getting some basic labs to start. Management strategies would include basically overall would be supportive. So airway and decontamination. You can do a gastric lavage or activated charcoal. Um, the general thought process behind these is that they should be done really shortly after ingestion, like less than two hours and patients that are protecting their airway or are already intubated because they're so unstable. But given the fact that TCAs have significant anticholinergic activities, it decreases spontaneous gastric emptying. And so the drug can stay in the stomach for several hours longer than it would at baseline. And so you can use kind of like activated charcoal later in the time frame for kind of medication classes such as this, where they activate anticholinergic activity. In terms of seizure activity, you want to stick with benzos like always. If the QRS is over 100 milliseconds and there's evidence of dysrhythmia, you can definitely trial sodium bicarb. You want to do sodium loading and serum alkalinization. So it's a bolus of one to two milliequivalents per kg initially. And then you can bolus every three to five minutes until the QRS improves. But you're aiming for a target pH of no greater than 7.5. So does this mean basically you like stick EKG leads on them and like repeat mm -hmm. the EKG? You don't take the leads off of them. You give them bicarb until you fix their QRS because of that high rate of turning into v VFib, VTAC? Yes. So basically, if you see someone coming in and they have a prolonged QRS, basically like anything over 100 and especially over 160 milliseconds, you're keeping those EKG leads on and you are getting very like recurrent EKGs to make sure that you're seeing evidence of changes because they have a very high risk of ventricular dysrhythmias. And then also what you want to do is you want to uh, make sure that you're giving fluids and pressors for hypotension. You can consider lipid IV emulsion. Um, but what you're going to definitely want to do is have your poison control center on board before you start going down that route. And then of note, there's no physostigmine for the anticholinergic side effects. I know we mentioned before in terms of the anticholinergic side effects being like dilated pupils, tachycardia, patient will be dry, they'll be hot, they might have urinary retention. You might see that and immediately jump to the conclusion that it's purely an anticholinergic, but you don't want to give phylosigmine in that situation because it's been shown to precipitate seizures in patients who have had a TCA overdose. Yikes. Which is really tough. I feel like there's yeah. a lot of going on with this where it's like you want to stay really conservative in a lot of ways, but also being aggressive in terms of what you are keeping your eyes out for. So going back to this case of the 50s-year-old female who took three of her 25-milligram amitriptyline tablets five hours before she came to the ED with stable vitals, but no initial EKG. The initial recommendations were to check the EKG with intervals, like we mentioned the importance of looking at the initial EKG upon arrival for these patients, and then benzos as needed for any seizure-like activity. Like any tox case, they wanted a CBC, a BMP, LFTs. They wanted a Tylenol level, aspirin level, ethanol level, obviously a urine tox screen, and then a urine pregnancy on this patient. And so some of the stuff that came back was that her EKG was normal sinus, her QRS was 102, and her QTC was 445. Her CMP looked fine. Her ethanol was a little bit up at 196. And then her Tylenol and aspirin were negative, as well as her Utox. So there were lots of things that were kind of like in the favor of this is probably fine. Her EKG looked okay with a QRS of only 102. It didn't look like she was overdosing at a level that we would consider to be toxic. And there were kind of like other components potentially as well. Like there was alcohol on board, but otherwise everything was stable. The patient was medically cleared by poison control for further workup in the emergency department.
But basically, some of the take-home points from this discussion today that I hope that everybody can learn from is the fact that TCA poisoning is still something that we need to take note of in the emergency department, particularly because it can cause serious morbidity and mortality. The distinctive characteristics that we need to watch out for are this CNS toxicity, like potentially in terms of seizures, and the cardiovascular toxicity, which we take note of using an EKG which is a very simple and very readily available diagnostic test that we can use to predict the development of significant toxicity, particularly looking at the QRS complex. The management includes supportive as always, but also looking at sodium loading and alkalinization with sodium bicarb, and then getting your poison control center on board early. Nice. 1-800-222-1222. Exactly. (laughs) Nice. All right. Thank you so much, Kat. That was super useful. Always here for your talks questions. If you guys have anything that you want to talk about talks wise, please send it our way so that we can talk about it or we can both nerd out a bit about it. I get a little bit happy talking biochem because nobody else wants to talk biochem. Home Alone Part 4. What is the thing that he put on the door? What would that have been useful? Uh, maybe like heating up water. Hmm. I use that once, like a couple times in Bangladesh. It's like a hot rod yeah. and you put it in water? Yeah. Do you think he did the right thing there? Treating it? You know? Yes. Directly into like freezing cold. I think cold water before ice. But I think it's like just room temp water. Oh, oh God, no. This scene. This shot. Everyone's gonna know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> Spitting into your burned hand. It's fine. Oh yeah. Okay, now we're talking burns. <laughs> it's getting so transferred to a burn center. <laughs> oh, that like all that stuff, the like synthetic fiber is gonna get melted into his head. It'll also hold the heat. Yeah, true. How many percent body area do you think? Do you think he needs transferred to a burn center? Uh, it's probably a solid like one to two percent. Yeah, Plus the like hand. Hand is one, yeah. and then yeah. that's like yeah, like two, three. So technically, probably not. Probably not. But the hand, I would want to. Yeah, the hand. to see the hand. Yeah. I don't remember this one. I remember this one. That did. Oh, okay. I do remember this one. Ooh, so it's hard. Oh, let's just let this one happen. I can't. Oh, God. <laughs> so much glass shard. Have you ever had somebody come in with like ornament in their in their feet? No. I had somebody with a glass ornament stuck inside their foot that I had to use the ultrasound to find and then remove. Because it's not going to show up on... It didn't show up on x-ray, yeah. Harry, why the hell did you take your shoes off? Why the hell you dress like a chicken? Documentation. With Dr. John Organically. My name is John Organically. I'm a PGY4. I am happily done with any and all IC rotations for the rest of my life. I keep telling people that it's weird to not have a sense of dread anymore. 
this is the part of the novel or the movie where my life seems all happy and great. And I'm probably going to like get hit by a bus or something. All right. Well, speaking of getting hit by a bus, let's talk about legal things and documentation. Uh, I could have done that better. It was probably a better segue there, but whatever. I don't care. (laughs) I think you're the person who knows probably the most out of the, anybody, any of the other residents about documentation. I think that because when everything changed back in January, 2023, I didn't know any of that was happening until we got a presentation from you and it was really useful and it also covered everything pretty well. And then I went to try and go back to everything that was happening. Like I went to go read up on it and my God, the landscape is just so one boring and two, just, just ongoing text fields of too much to read, not enough like explanation of what's going on. So if uh, anybody has a question about what we're talking about here, it's charting. We're talking about ED charting. And I want you to kind of explain to me what charting is, why it's important, kind of like as if it was my first time coming to the ED, because that's what we're really going for here. It's going to be like um, our interns, our off-service residents. And, you know, I'm sure that I'm going to get something useful out of this too. I already have from us talking before we were recording. But I want you to kind of introduce me to charting like we were back then, you know, at the beginning of January when this is all just changing. Because I'll be honest with you, I thought that charting was really just attendings uh, making bank off of resident work. And what I'm starting <laughs> to learn is that it's corporations making bank off of attending work. And then it's just, it's just turtles going all the way up. Yeah, I think that what you're describing right then and there is the thing that makes documentation seem so dry and boring and something that's really hard to care about in academic medicine. And what I would want to tell any medical student going into a residency or any resident or even any new attending is that documentation and charting does matter both for us as well as for things that are centered around the patient. When I'm on shift and I'm working with an off-service resident or maybe an MS4 medical student who's interested in emergency medicine, I, I will highlight things on shift about what's important about their documentation and why it matters. Because you've been there before. You'll look at an old chart from a patient who visited the ED and you'll look at it and say, well, this is garbage. This isn't helpful at all. Oh, my God. Hey, well, I'm on, I'm a teaching resident right now. Yeah. And the only information I have is what you've written down. And so I have no idea if you right. let this patient know that they have syphilis or not. Right, right. We, we talked about, we said the word documentation and we said the word charting. I would say charting is more either related to reimbursement or it's more EMR specific. So I will actually just talk about documentation and the importance of documentation. I like to break it into three different buckets. First bucket for documentation is it's important in regards to communication with other healthcare providers. Bucket one, communication. Because when you as the teaching resident get back that someone tested positive for chlamydia, it's important for you to know based on my documentation, whether or not they were treated properly for the chlamydia. And did I have a conversation with that patient about being pre-treated? And if you test positive, what that means for treating your partner, et cetera, or what their symptoms look like. But being able to communicate through your documentation can also be really important in future either emergency department encounters or future inpatient encounters. Is this right upper extremity weakness that my patient is concerned about new and a sign of an acute stroke? Or when I look in their chart from eight months ago, is their documented right upper extremity three out of five strength 
And therefore, this is maybe instead not a new stroke, but recrudescence in the setting of urosepsis for this patient. So that's the first important category of why I want you to care about documentation, communication with other providers. The second thing is more cynical, but still important, which is legal risk mitigation, medical legal bucket, I guess we'll call it. Bucket two, medical legal. And I want you to think of you're in a court of law four years later about a patient encounter. And it turns out that there was a diagnosis that was either missed or there was maybe a diagnosis that wasn't present at the time. Patient came in the second time in their emergency department visit for low back pain. You evaluated them, you sent them home, and then they come back a week later and they have a spinal epidural abscess. It's going to look really different if you document there that you did a full neurological examination, you asked and assessed for saddle anesthesia or bowel and bladder incontinence, and you asked about high-risk things like history of IV drug use, history of trauma, prior bacteremic infections. If you don't list those things and they come back a, a week later and that patient suffers certain you know, morbidity outcomes, then you have a pretty weak case if you ever end up being sued. But if you do the proper thing and document that, yes, I asked all those things, and it was simply that the patient just hadn't yet presented with symptoms and signs that were concerning enough for a spinal epidural abscess, then it's a good thing that you have that proper documentation. Your documentation in the emergency department for a patient encounter can absolutely make or break a case against you or a case against other providers near you or a case against the hospital. And then the third and final thing that can be really challenging to get people to care about is documentation's role in reimbursement. Bucket three, reimbursement. We get paid for the things that we do solely based on our documentation and the ICD-10 diagnoses that we provide to insurance companies. That's my basic introduction, the three reasons why you should care about clinical documentation. Does any of this change in uh, January? Because what happened in January? I keep talking about January, but I'm not explaining what happened in January. Can you explain what happened in January of 2023? Sure. So previously, there were the documentation guidelines for what are called evaluation and management services. It's You'll see it often as E slash M, and it's published by the AMA related to their CPT codes. And so the long and short of that really is you as an emergency doctor get paid for the work that you do in the ED. That can either be through procedures like an arterial line and intubation, or it can be through the work that you do managing and evaluating a patient's condition for which they are presenting to your ED. The vast majority of services that you provide are going to be through that ENM code. That's the, how do I remember, 99281 through 99285. It's what we refer to when we talk about this is a level five encounter, this is a level three encounter, or this is a level three chart. And basically, the more work that you put into your evaluation and management of a patient, the higher the code that you can bill for and the more that you as an emergency doctor may get paid. And so in the 1997 guidelines, the AMA said, the way you're going to prove how hard you worked to evaluate this patient is simply through the number of systems that you talk about in your review of systems, the number of systems that you evaluate through your physical exam, the number of 
social and family history questions that you ask the patient, and then the way that you describe their history of present illness. That is where we've gotten our 25 years of having to ask a patient who comes in for chest pain, if they have any drainage in their ears, if they have any knee pain, if there's any gait disturbance, if they are feeling any paresthesias in their legs, not really relevant to their actual chief complaint. But for years, physicians would get chart bounce backs simply because they only reviewed nine systems in the physical exam as opposed to 11 or as opposed to 13. The change that was made for starting January in 2023 is they got rid of that number of systems equals level of chart requirement. So now the only thing that it states, and I can actually pull it up here. I have it somewhere. Of course you do. So a big change for 2023 was that there was a reduction in the focus on history and physical exam as elements for which code that you end up billing for. It stipulates that it should be a quote, medically appropriate history and slash or physical exam. But that's it. It just needs to be medically appropriate. The way that coders will determine what level of service that you provided for a patient is almost entirely based on your medical decision making, which is frankly, the crux of what we actually find interesting in medicine. Why is it that this patient with chest pain, you're able to rule out aortic dissection and a PE and you're more concerned about acute coronary syndrome? Well, it's because of these elements of their history, these elements of their physical, and then how are you going to evaluate for those things? What labs are you going to get? How are you able to rule out that this patient is having an acute coronary syndrome? How are you able to rule out that this patient has a PE? That's the, in my opinion, like the interesting part of emergency medicine, the actual thinking, the critical thinking aspect. And so it's changed things so that you no longer have to get 13 physical exam systems. It is entirely based on why the patient came in, what you ultimately diagnosed them with, and how you ruled in or ruled out those emergent things. Excellent. So I don't have to do a 10-point review of systems on literally everybody anymore. Precisely. Excellent. You need to do one that is medically appropriate. A shoulder reduction is should be a level four or level five chart, level five code. But I'm not asking about abdominal pain, dysuria, saddle anesthesia, knee pain. And they're going to say, yeah, I was walking my dog and then my dog ran forward and I felt my shoulder pop out. You don't have to ask about all those inane review system questions. Are you having any chest pain? Any fevers since all of this happened? They're going to be like, what are you talking about? No, my dog yanked my shoulder out. I've had this happen before. Just fix my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the, um, there's like an Instagram reel going around right now of a guy holding his laptop studying for step one. A patient presents with painless hematuria. He inserts a toothpick into his urethra every third day. What is the primary cause of his hematuria? Was it the toothpick? Incorrect. He has post-strep glomerulonephritis. You missed the detail. He had a sore throat four weeks ago. Your U-world average is down to 14%. <laughs> See, this is the thing that I mean, right? Like we're trained. I think I'm coming at this from a... And yeah. so in my mind, it's like I have all these questions and I'm not done seeing the patient until I've asked my stupid questions. Right. And so I still ask, like, are you having any chest pain, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, changes in your urinary or bowel habits, any skin changes? Like I can just go through it. Yeah. And I feel like it's it's just a script that I have, which isn't bad. Right. right? It's very right. useful when somebody has very undifferentiated presentation and you don't know what's sure. going on. But in somebody where it's like uh, your shoulder popped out. Wow. 
I feel kind of silly for doing that for like the longest time, but I was trained to do that because of the way that it happened anyway. So that's a big pro, I think, from my perspective. Do you think there's any cons from going into this new method of what is medically appropriate? I think some feedback that I've heard from, especially I would say maybe attendings who are used to practicing a certain way is actually exactly what you're just talking about, which is that, well, you need to go through a full review of systems. The patient has a fever. It's important to know about all those other review of systems, to which my response is, I understand what you're talking about at the same time. I'm an emergency medicine doctor. I'm not necessarily an internist. I'm not here to figure out that, oh, you're having a really rare kind of renal tubular acidosis or something. That's just not like, that's not within my personal scope of practice. Right. And so I, I do think that there are some people who would argue that this is going to lead to less complete starting but it is kind of what you're saying. I think it's just a paradigm shift. If you have a patient with acute appendicitis verified on CT, then all you need is the physical exam showing the reason why you got the CT scan and then the CT read and the fact that you gave antibiotics and consulted surgery. Like that's still a level five chart, but you just don't have to ask all of those absurd questions and then do all of those physical exam maneuvers. Summary. We covered... Quite a few things, actually. We ended up covering, there are three buckets of charting. So making sure that providers can communicate with each other well, making sure that you're kind of protected from a medical legal standpoint, and then also then making dollar dollar signs. Money, dollar, dollar bill, yo. Uh, and then lastly, <laughs> we covered these changes that happened in 2023, which for the most part seem like they're a step in the right direction in terms of what is medically appropriate mm-hmm. and not be having a, like a whole bunch of extraneous information or extraneous workup that needs to be done based on what you're asking. Yeah. But countering that by being maybe too focused on the problem and maybe sometimes not having as much of a broad workup, but there's like kind of, you, you're, you can be on either side of that um, for this. Yeah. Home Alone Part 5. Why the hell did you take your shoes off? Why the hell you dress like a chicken? Ow! I get it! How the hell we get out? There's no way they would do his hand. So yeah, we did a tarantula episode. That's really not that bad to have the tarantula on you unless the tarantula is angry at you. With all the hairs. When they filmed this, they had to have them silent scream so it didn't stress out the tarantula. So it's like, is that? Are you being serious? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow! Look at you with these like movie trip. We're gonna bring you on for all these movies now. Seven nail to his foot. First thing I'm gonna do: bite off every one of these little fingers, one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing to happen either no also i was looking i was looking at the shovel before it's pretty flimsy it is really flimsy i don't think that would hurt did you know that it takes the same amount of force theoretically to bite off a human finger as to bite through a baby carrot tori why do you know that (laughs) and it takes the same amount of force to rip off an ear as it does to peel an orange why do you know this that's disgusting (laughs) fun that's horrifying 
Fun facts. Why do you know this? Uh, I don't know. Is this real? Yeah. Nice. The real fun facts. Doctor. Sorry, my name is Sam. Dr. Winston is my wife. All right. Anyway, warm welcome and introduction to the episode. So I had a case recently of a procedure that I did, an orthopedic procedure that I did, that I have never seen before, actually, until this year. The case. It's a cold December night. I'm the teaching resident. So it's actually, it's a cold December morning. EMS brings in a like, teenage kid who was ice skating. And after he fell while ice skating, because you know it's hard to keep your balance when you're ice skating. This is a normal thing. He falls. He lands on his left knee. He, he had like a whole, whole bunch of pain right afterwards. And he couldn't really move his leg. So they bring him in. He's wearing like the weirdest clothes, but he says he just went shopping at H&M. Um, mm. I can't really do my full assessment when he's there, but he looks like he's, you know, vitally stable, airway intact. You know, this is, I'm not calling this a trauma or anything like that. And he's basically saying, I can't move my left leg. Um, I can't like flex or extend. And I take a look down there and what I see is that he looks like he has like a pretty significant deformity in the distal femur. So what is on your mind right away when I give you this case? Is there anything that you specifically want to do? Well, I mean, when you tell me that the kid can't move his leg, uh, the first thing that I want to do is I want to clarify what that means to him. Is like, you can't move your leg because it hurts so much. You can't move your leg because you can't, like, you're too weak to move your leg or uh, you can't move your leg because it's separated from your body. Like, I just want to make sure. And then also, like, was he wearing leather pants? Is that why you couldn't really fully? They weren't leather. They were like plaid, tan plaid. I, I'm, I'm making a big deal out of this. The, it, really, it was totally normal. Pants. It was normal pants. Yeah. I'll, I'll get to the point of the pants later. This is not at all like relevant in any way. So he can feel everything. He feels like he can move. He's, he can move his distal extremities. He's neurovascularly intact. But the big thing here is that he feels like he can't flex his knee. He feels like when he tries to flex his knee, he has a lot of pain and he can't really extend his knee either. He's having a little bit of pain when he does that as well. He just feels like he's kind of locked up. You take a look down there um, and you notice that there's a bulge. Uh, the bulge is like the lateral side of his like left distal femur. You put your hand on there, just superior to his tibia. And they're just like a divot there. All you feel is softness where you would normally feel. Where I would normally feel knee. Where you would normally feel knee. There is no knee. Mm. So what's your next step, Sam? So my next step is get those pants off. Exactly. Uh, All right. So I talked to him about these pants. He had just bought them from H&M. And he was like, please don't cut my pants off. Can we see if we can get them off? And we tried for like a long while. Actually, the longest thing we did while he was in the ED was try to get his pants off in an easy way for him without putting him in pain. It did not work out. Oh, so you did procedurally sedate him to get his pants off? I did not procedurally sedate him to get his pants off. a little bit off. of ketamine and then those pants will be right off. Well, we're in a ketamine shortage, Sam. And we'll talk about what we're going to do for this kid. Uh-huh. Anyway, he doesn't yeah, need any sure. analgesia or anything to get his pants off. Um, I just cut the left leg. Oh my God. There's so much wrong already with this podcast. Um, I cut the left leg up. I'm just going to stay silent and let you keep digging that hole. Perfect. Thank you. I cut the left leg of his uh, pant leg and I confirm our suspicion, which is what I'm expecting you think is going on as well, which is he's got a knee dislocation. His patella is displaced laterally. And he's looking at me like, oh my God, my leg. And I'm looking at him like, I've heard about this before. Have you seen this before? Yes, I have seen patellar dislocation before. I've seen it once or twice. I've reduced it, I think, twice. And then once somebody accidentally just sort of reduced themselves, which was nice. Um, there was one time I also saw one of my attendings, like, as a patient was being wheeled to a room, literally just reducing it while they were in the EMS stretcher. So, like, it's, it's, it's a pretty straightforward reduction, for the most part. Um, but I will say I wouldn't recommend doing it that way because that's mean. 
Background. So really, basically what happens is your uh, patella itself is sort of displaced laterally. It's usually from uh, a fall or like when you hit your knee in just this certain specific way, it'll sort of like pop over kind of to the side so it's not anterior anymore. Um, And really, uh, all you need to do is make sure you're giving adequate pain control. Usually I go with just a little bit of fentanyl and some some Versed. The procedure. And then... Uh, you just push on the side of it as someone else is extending the leg and goes right back. What equipment do you feel like you need for these reductions? So really there isn't any necessary equipment. I mean, I I would prefer to have an IV for this patient so you can give them adequate analgesia. You don't, you don't really have to have anything specific with you just like a pair of hands and then maybe one other person to help you extend that patient's leg. And I mean, you're really, you're going to have to explain it to the patient being like that. The major thing that's going to make this pain go away is us putting this knee in the correct spot. I mean, we're going to give you medicines, but this will take less than a second for us to put it back. So we're just going to do it. Yeah. I was going to say you need a patient and you need a pair of hands. Yeah. And like, I, I'm like, ideally you have another set of hands too. I uh, am pretty sure everybody who is practicing medicine right now has hands. Technically, you do need those to practice medicine, according to the ACGME. Well, technically, um, you only need one hand. Okay. I so you can actually thinking about it, you might not actually need your hands. Uh, we'll get into that. Um, no. Anyway, for, <laughs> for this kid, I, I needed um, I needed supervision, right? Because this is my first time actually doing this. So I had uh, one of our seniors help, JOL. Uh, he came with me and was like, basically, he just stood there while I did the whole thing. And that was all that needed to get the, get the patella back into the right place. But like you said, this happens a lot of the time when people fall or they're like in the middle of playing sports and they kind of twist their knee. All of a sudden they lock up their knee and they see a big weird bulge where their patella is and where it's not supposed to be. You mentioned pain control, putting an IV in somebody and getting some fentanyl and Versed, which technically counts as a procedural sedation, right? You're using, with the supervision of my senior resident, tried to do this bedside on the EMS stretcher while uh, the patient was being checked in to which the attending was like, no, no, you can't do that. Um, please let's do a little, a little bit better of a physical examination. And I, and I was like, you know what? That's fair. That's fair. I haven't done one of these. That's fair. So I put in some orders for some pain medication and I put, I remember I put in some morphine and I put in some Tylenol and I put in some, some Ketorolac. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get this, done for this patient. We're going to set him free. We're going to be very quick about it. And I go with JOL and JOL is just like, just go like massage the quadriceps tendon and the patellar tendon, like the muscles around there and make him nice and relaxed. And so I did that. And then I was like, you know, what might help is that if, if JOL, if you could, uh, or my senior, if you could extend his knee, like you were saying. And so he started to extend his knee and like literally in a fraction of a second, that thing just went right in the, back in the right spot. And that is the exact yep. sound effect every time. Nope. It's just right away. No pain meds, no sedation, nothing. He was just, nope. they went right in the right spot. It was very easy. It was extremely satisfying. Sure. And that's all I needed. What I have learned actually, and this is getting back to my point about like the whole, you need two hands, but you really don't actually. Apparently, oh, I put it in an x-ray of course, right? Cause I want to know if it's this, like I want to see the patella in the wrong spot. Apparently, If you try and get a complete knee x-ray on these people, they will try and extend their knee all the way, thus accidentally reducing their knee in radiology 
and then bringing them out to you already reduced. <laughs> so technically, you don't even need hands. You just need a radiology. No, you just need a radiologist or a radiology tech. Yeah, you need a radiology tech. I wonder if they can bill for their procedures that they do. Mm, anyway, I hope they can. I want them to make. Yeah. So uh, the reason I wanted to mention the like all of that is because I feel like for a lot of what I hear about these, you don't actually need pain medications. I mean, you can do like the like lower level stuff like ibuprofen, Tylenol, but I feel like the fentanyl and the morphine, really what you're doing with those is you're just getting the patient to calm down. Kind of like what, with like a shoulder reduction. You just want them to calm and relax. Mm-hmm. That's what I know about those. So how successful have you been with your uh, patellar dislocation reductions? I mean, I, I've generally been very successful with it because it's, 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 as you say, really very quick, very easy. And honestly, yeah, I mean, in situations where you're able to get a patient calm and you're able to just sort of massage it back in, then, hey, that's excellent. I personally am a big proponent of pain control. Uh, and so in my, in my people that I do end up doing some sort of procedure, even if it's like a little reduction, even if it's quick, and even if the pain really is going to go away once I just have it in, eh, I'm going to give them something, right? And yeah, maybe I don't need to sedate them, you know, and I, for the most part, don't. But a little fentanyl never hurt anybody uh, except for, you know, uh, if it's mixed with other things. <laughs> no, a little fentanyl never hurt anybody. The stuff from the hospital, not, yeah, don't yeah. go out, don't buy fentanyl don't from you, people in the street. Uh, no, 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 no. Let us give it to you. Yes, please. Back on topic. All right. So what's the, what's the management after you've gotten that patella in? Because if you can't get it in, obviously you're going to talk to orthopedics. And I've had a lot of success with this. I'm one for one. I'm a hundred percent. Once the patella is back, I have always gotten a post-reduction x-ray. And that's not just to make sure that the patella is in the right place and everything, but it's also to make sure that we don't have like some sort of other fracture that's involved. Once the patella is back in, I also do like a really full exam because the the big thing is, I, I mean, granted, I would have done one prior, but now that you actually have like anatomic relocation, it's easier to find the quadriceps tendon, the patellar uh, ligament and all that stuff and actually be able to feel it, make sure that they have good range of motion without, you know, making them move around too much so that they don't like re-dislocate. And then plus or minus, I have sent out a couple of mine on a knee immobilizer to follow up with orthopedics. That's yeah, that's exactly what I I would do. So I I don't range it too much because I'm always afraid I'm going to re-dislocate it. But like a little bit of range of motion more than they could have before. That's way better. And then I put them in a knee immobilizer. I don't want that thing coming back out again. I put them on a knee immobilizer. I put them on, make them non-weight bearing usually on that uh, extremity like put them in crutches and I have, I have them follow up with orthopedics or sports medicine or the primary care doctor in like a week. Summary. Uh, for someone who comes in with a potential patellar dislocation, it's a good idea to try to get pre-reduction films. But the big thing is making sure that you have a thorough physical exam, assess for other injury, and then um, provide pain control as best you can. Uh, try not to, you don't necessarily need to do like a procedural sedation or anything, but you can always give like oral pain meds or a little shot of fentanyl to try to help someone be calm. And then really the reduction itself is fairly simple. Just make sure that you get someone relaxed and uh, you can either just push directly on the patella itself when it's displaced laterally while someone else is extending the knee, or you can just try the massaging method where you massage the muscles on either end and slowly extend the knee until the patella just back in place. Um, and then post-reduction films, knee immobilizer, pain control, and follow-up. Home Alone Part 6. 
They should probably take them to a hospital before jail. Just a <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> I've never thought about that before in my entire time that I've watched this movie. Multiple times I was like, oh yeah, they're fine. They can just go to the they can just go to jail. No, they can't. They probably need a medical clearance. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, no, I've seen people who have needed like needed to be admitted for like ENT surgery to fix their noses and stuff before yeah. they go back. Yeah, hundred percent. You're so entitled to medical care, even if you were under arrest. And really dumb wet bandits. Happy December, everyone. Uh, I'm sorry I wasn't here for the intro, uh, but Armand did invite me. Wasn't this lovely? This was great. I don't know anything about what happened in this podcast. Uh, there was something about uh, Home Alone and uh, injuries that occurred. Ouch, that's no fun. Uh, we talked about patellar dislocation. That I know about because I was in it. And uh, I'm sure other holiday-related stuff. Please make sure to tune in for next month's episode where maybe I will be featured. Hard to tell. And uh, maybe, I don't know, give Armand a hug next time you see him. Yeah, do that. I love you. How was that canyon that you were in? That's why we didn't have you on the last one. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the canyon was lovely. There were no floods, so I, I survived and I got to come home. Is that um, a thing? Yeah, yeah. It floods in the summer um, sometimes and uh, people get washed away and die. But they're pretty close. They're like pretty careful about that. Uh, most of the tour groups are owned by like the Navajo Nation. And so they're very leery about that sort of thing. My favorite part about the whole trip was actually being followed by the Navajo police all the way out of out of the nation. I didn't do anything wrong. I, they, I think they were just following me. I don't know why. But we got some fun baskets and <laughs> and I got Armand some jewelry. And uh, my wife really enjoyed being in Arizona for a bit. That was good. And I mean, it was nice to see my family, too. They were there. Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> I got to uh, treat Rabdo at home. That was good. What? Oh, that's right. Ah, yeah, I made her drink a load of water because she was brown. <laughs> yeah. Don't, well, don't go kayak for eight hours in the hot sun on a statin, kids. Um, I got really nothing to add. I hope you listen to the episode. Uh, I like Taylor's uh, thing on Osborne Waves. I think that was probably my like the most fun I had editing. Let Taylor on this thing? Yeah, he's been on it. Good. He's yeah. way smart, so you better put him on more. Oh my God. He carries calipers. You should listen to this guy. Anyway, I all right, um, do, but I never use them. He told me to buy them and I haven't used them. You also have calipers. <laughs> yeah. They're in my little, my little goat bag, my little, my little purple purse. Should I get calipers? Get calipers. Why don't you have calipers? I'm going to go on Amazon right now and buy some it calipers. Buy some. Did you get them on Amazon? I did. I bought them on Amazon. They're heavy uh, and they're sharp. So they're actually, I've, I've been holding them. They're more for like self-defense. I'm doing it right now. Taylor, if you're listening to this, I'm, I'm literally buying, I'm literally buying EKG calipers from Amazon right now. This is the going to be the weirdest outro. Everybody, I hope you really enjoyed this uh, month's show. Uh, this is the end of 2023. Look at that. Wow. I'm very happy. I'm looking forward to 2024. What are you looking forward to in 2024, Sam? Um, um, all right, great. So 2024 is going to be a <laughs> great year. And, um, <laughs> I got nothing else. Listen, if you guys have anything that you want to looking forward to being a senior with this asshole, that is going to be fantastic. That's right. That is going to happen in 2024. Um, oh my God. We're going to become fourth year residents.
people have started asking me questions in the department and I tell them, oh, no, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm a baby. Don't talk to me. I'm just a little baby. I don't have any money. I'm sorry. I don't have any. I'm a little baby. I'm a baby. I have no money. <laughs> All right. That's what's happening in 2024. Uh, if you guys have any interesting things that you want us to talk about, whether that's about EKGs or toxicology or calipers or anything. Yeah. Tell us what brand of calipers you have. Put it in the, ma- um, put it in the, in the chat. Yeah. Whatever. Put it in the chat. Put it in the comments. I, I really don't think this is how it works. Yeah. No. Like, I also am realizing I've never put our email anywhere so that, so that's probably why no one's ever contacted us. That's, that's the reason. It's not that we, we aren't popular. Here's to another lousy millennium. Um, hey, our email is uh, gwemblog at gmail.com. So send us all your things. That's all I got. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Charlie Brown. Yeah, let's go play. Happy New Year.